0: Hello and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for this, oh, I don't know, show 190 something or other, and uh, the end of April 2019. And this week, we are going to jump right into it. Oh, first, I have to say, uh, this podcast is brought to you on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, and with video here on YouTube. And uh, yes, I am looking for uh, trying to get this onto more outlets, but uh, God, the logistics on getting podcasts out there is a little hairy sometimes. But anyway... This podcast is going to be about the subject of control. We're going to talk about control, various aspects of it, some things I've been thinking about. Kind of informal podcast. I made some notes here, but I don't have like a whole script or anything like that like I've done in earlier weeks. Uh, we're just going to gab here. And uh, you might notice, for those of you who are watching with video, that I am not wearing one of my usual sort of shirts. I am wearing an Avengers shirt this week. That is um, in honor of the uh, premiere of Avengers Endgame, uh, which I just saw last night with Melissa, and I definitely have to comment, I'm not doing full-blown movie reviews anymore, uh, because it really didn't seem to take with most of my audience, but, um, but I'll tell you, man, this movie was Perfect. Just perfect. I I know there are people who will see flaws and see problems with it. I didn't see those. (laughs) I, I laughed. I cried. I had very, very many emotional ups and downs with these characters that we have come to uh, know and love over the last 10, 12 years or so. Um, Just absolutely amazing Uh, wrap-up to a whole phase of the Marvel Universe development. And if you're into that kind of thing, then I think you're just going to love it. And if you're not, well, you know, no big deal. Um, I obviously am. I'm still a geeky, nerdy guy at heart. And I see nothing wrong with that. And I see nothing wrong with letting my geek... Flag fly uh, freely because because um, I'm just really into that kind of stuff. So anyway, I just thought I'd throw that out there. We went and saw the first show <laughs> yesterday. Uh, got tickets weeks ago, um, and it was just an amazing experience. The theater was packed. There was a st- there was a oh you know everybody was applauding at the end of the movie. There were tears. I mean, it was really it was really an experience. So uh, that's all I'm going to say about it. No spoilers of any kind. You guys are just going to love it. All right, so now let's get into this. Uh, Coercive control, control, let's see here. First off, you know, all right, destructive cults, totalist groups, high control groups, high demand groups, authoritarian groups. I mean, we use these terms and we use terms like coercive persuasion, coercive control, that term tends to be used more in the realm of domestic violence, actually, but the, re- but the relationship uh, with an abuser and a spouse, very, very similar in so many ways to a cultic abusive relationship as we've gone over so many times on the, sh- on the, the channel here. We use these terms, but you know, I never, I, I don't know that other than sort of giving a passing thought to it or a passing definition, I don't know that I've really gone into detail about what is it that makes something, you know, coercive or or uh, controlling, overtly controlling, you know, like what's what's so bad about that? You know, you start breaking these words down, you start looking at the ingredients of it, and you see that it depends. It really depends. And uh, so, So let's get into this. What's this, you know, what is this all based on, this whole idea of these kind of groups and and these kind of abusive situations people get themselves into? um, And then maybe some situations that people get themselves into that they don't particularly view as abusive, and yet we look at it from the outside and go, oh man, come on. What's, What's up with all that? Well, to a great degree, it has to do with our ideas about control and compliance. Control uh, is the power to influence or direct people's behavior or the course of events. Uh, that's a noun definition of control. And verb definition is to is to determine the behavior or supervise the running of. Uh, funny enough, in Scientology, I really don't find a whole lot of issues with this definition of control that L. Ron Hubbard gave. I don't know where he got it from, but it's a it's a fairly tight Concise definition of control, and its its definition in Scientology is uh, the ability to start, change, or stop something at will. Uh, and if you can do that, then you control it. And whether that applies to a, an object, a person, a, a situation, an event, if you can start it, stop it, and uh, you know move it around or do whatever you want to do with it, start, change, or stop it, then you can control it. Um, all right, and compliance. What does compliance mean? <laughs> uh, of course, we have all the ideas of compliance in terms of uh, complying with rules or regulations or we're a compliant organization. But in terms of people, compliance has to do with bending, pliant, being ply or pliant. is sort of like you get this idea of a weed or a, a piece of blade of grass waving in the, in the uh, wind or something. It, it, it plies, you know, it's, it, it's, it's able to bend. Uh, and, of course, when you are making somebody comply to your will or your intention, then you are making them bend to your will. They, they are not uh, presenting resistance. They are going with the flow, right, so to speak. And, you know, with the increased pace of our society and how we value and use our time, This has kind of led to an increased potential for us to be in situations where we will unthinkingly comply. I've gone over free will. I've gone over our decision-making processes in in earlier podcasts. Whether you agree or disagree with that, I'm pretty sure that you would agree that advertising um, and uh, other kinds of propaganda or promotional things that we see and hear all day, every day that we're flooded with can certainly have an effect on us. I mean, whether you're gonna agree that, you know, all of these things are things we have to bow down to, I've, I've never asserted that, but I do think that these things have a, you know, conscious and subconscious effect on us. And the rise of internet cults is gonna take advantage of this phenomena, without question, it already is. Coercive means relating to using force or threats So coercive persuasion is influencing someone through the use of force. And coercive control is, of course, like I mentioned, uh, coming mainly, or springing mainly from uh, domestic violence issues, is controlling someone through the use of force. Now, that's obviously, you can use the term coercive control to describe any situation, but it tends to get used in that area and subject. If you Google it, you'll see exactly what I mean. Coercion is a form of pressure that can take place on the emotional and psychological level. And sometimes it can involve physical force. You see, when we're talking about force, we're not just talking about physical force. Psychological and emotional coercion are meant to convince a person to change his or her no or maybe into a yes through the use of mind games. (laughs) In law, coercion is codified as a duress crime. Such actions are used as leverage to force the victim to act in a way contrary to their own interests. Coercion may involve the actual infliction of physical pain or injury or psychological harm in order to enhance the credibility of a threat. And I'm sure, you know, for my longtime listeners, you guys are already connecting the dots here on how all of this works with cults and with with emotional blackmail. And the kind of uh, emotional duress that people are put under, you know, in Scientology, this has to do with disconnection, shunning, and other religious groups. But shunning is just a term that's used for, that we talk about with religious groups, but it occurs in any group, anywhere. When you start bucking the system in any group you're involved in, you're going to get frowny faces, you're going to get resistance and pushback because you're kind of rubbing up against the group in a wrong way and they're going to push back. But how much they push back will determine whether you're experiencing any kind of coercion, right? And uh, if you use coercive measures to get people to join your club, it means that you intimidate or force people to make them feel like they have to join. It can take nothing more than a strong sense of authority to come across as coercive. Or the intimidation can take the form of physical threats. Now, in researching this, um, I'm not going to provide you know this big long list of references, but I did find this, and it was very very interesting. It was an article called "Coercive Persuasion and Attitude Change" by Richard J. Offshee, a PhD, and I'll include the link on that uh, in the show notes at sensiblyspeaking.com. He says, "Quote: Coercive persuasion and thought reform are alternate names for programs of social influence." capable of producing substantial behavior and attitude change through the use of coercive tactics, persuasion, and or interpersonal and group-based influence manipulations. Such programs have also been labeled brainwashing, a term more often used in the media than in scientific literature. However identified, these programs are distinguished from other elaborate attempts to influence behavior and attitudes to socialize, and to accomplish social control. Their distinguishing features are their totalistic qualities, the types of influence procedures they employ, and the organization of these procedures into three distinctive sub-phases of the overall process. The key factors that distinguish coercive persuasion from other training and socialization schemes are 1 the reliance on intense interpersonal and psychological attack to destabilize an individual's sense of self to promote compliance. Two, the use of an organized peer group. Three, applying interpersonal pressure to promote conformity. And four, the manipulation of the totality of the person's social environment to stabilize behavior once modified. And I think Again, any of my longtime listeners or viewers will will immediately be connecting dots here. The reliance on intense interpersonal and psychological attack to destabilize an individual's sense of self to promote compliance. Scientology has an entire division within their organizations, and a, a sorry, a department within that division. Which is called the ethics division. It's actually, uh, or department. It's actually called the Department of Inspections and Reports, (laughs) but it is the ethics department, and that all the people in that department are only interested in uh, the membership of the Church of Scientology complying with the directions and orders that David Miscavige and L. Ron Hubbard have given. If they do not, then intense interpersonal and psychological attacks will occur to destabilize that person's sense of self. They will be shown, for example, numerous references by L. Ron Hubbard overriding their determinism and telling them that L. Ron Hubbard is right and they are wrong, that everybody else in Scientology is right and they are wrong for questioning, bucking the system, breaking the rules, whatever. Uh, even just expressing some you know, questions about, hey, what's going on around here? What about this? I think Leah Remini had a good point. What about this? Oh, you know, I think you guys are, what's all this disconnection you guys are engaging in? I, I, I'm hearing families are breaking up. Oh, please, come right over here with me, have a seat, and let's, you know, let's go over this, right? And then the ethics officers will start going to town on the guy. Uh, the use of an organized peer group, you know, the Scientology Knowledge Report System, is exactly this. You have, uh, and it's, believe me, it's organized. I mean, everybody has a file folder and everybody's writing reports on everybody else and they're all going into these file folders and once the folder starts getting a little thick, according to L. Ron Hubbard policy, then that's the guy you want to call in and start raking over the coals, right? Even if he's the good guy and everybody else is reporting on him because they're, you know, whatever, that's how it happens. Um, Applying interpersonal pressure to promote conformity. Again, ethics, peer group pressure, in-group pressure, uh, familial pressure. I mean, there's a lot of vectors on an individual Scientologist to get him to comply with what, uh, what the church wants him to do. And, of course, the manipulation of the totality of the person's social environment. You know, before too long in Scientology or any cult, mind you, Not all cults have these ethics officers and all this stuff going on. They have different manifestations of these four points, but all of these points tend to line up in any cult situation, any destructive cult situation. So the manipulation of the person's social environment um, to stabilize behavior once modified. Well, you quickly find that all your friends are fellow cult members pretty quickly, right? So that's stabilizing the social environment. Um, getting you to stop being connected to non-Scientologists because they're the ones who are, you know, being the little earworms feeding you all the bad data coming from me and Mike Rinder and Leah Remini and and everybody else out there, right, Aaron and and company. Um, You know, we're giving you all the truth about Scientology and about cults, and they don't, you know, they don't want any of that, so they got to cut every single line of communication that's coming to you as a, as a cult member as a Scientologist in this case so that they're controlling your social environment by getting you to agree that people who aren't Scientologists don't really know anything about Scientology and never did and if they left Scientology of course they have all their overts and withholds and evil acts and all of, and evil intentions and all of that so they get you to agree by leading you down this path. And this is where the, co you know, this is where some of this coercive persuasion comes in. Because if you don't agree and don't comply, then you're going to find yourself in more and more trouble. You're going to find yourself the subject of more and more pressure. And generally speaking, you know, people are pretty timid. They want to get along uh, for the most part. Always you have exceptions. But you know, they want to, especially when they're in a new group or in a group that they feel that is going to do them some good or is going to help them out, well, then they want to stay there. They want to keep getting the goods. They want to keep getting these benefits that they perceive they're getting. And yet there's this weird pressure on them. And they're like, wow, this doesn't feel really good. But boy, I sure love those auditing sessions or whatever. And so there's this weird balancing act that they have to do. And after a while, they find it easier for the most part to just, okay, I'll just, I'll just do it. I'll just follow the rules. I'll just go along. I'll stop seeing my old friends or I'll, I'll dump the girl or I'll dump the guy or whatever they need to do so that they are going along with the pressure that the church or the cult group is putting on them. And, um, and it's really good to actually think of lots of different contexts in which this kind of stuff occurs because it occurs in the business world, it occurs in hobby groups and sports groups and clubs. I mean, this is not just in destructive cults that this kind of behavior occurs, but it, again, the, as I I'm, am as I'm always want to say here, the thing about destructive cults is they take all this kind of behavior and they just dial it up to 11. So that it becomes really extreme, and it might not look like it's dialed up to eleven when you first go in there, and it might not look like it's dialed up to eleven within the first year that you're there. But odds are, by that point, you're going to start getting some bad vibes and start seeing what's going on, and people that you maybe were there suddenly aren't there, and anyway, just all kinds of weird stuff. So, um, so this manifests in lots of different ways, and it's it's actually pretty um, cool mental exercise to kind of play around with these ideas and see how they do and and don't apply in different groups of different kinds that you maybe you have been associated with. So, okay, so now let's talk about control. I've been giving this a lot of thought in the last few days, and of course, I had to, um, well, I had to unlearn quite a bit about the subject of control that I had learned in Scientology. I mentioned earlier here the definition of control. I still don't really have much of a problem with that. But the idea of laying hands on people and shoving their body around, eh, maybe that's not such a good idea, right? Maybe that's not such a therapeutic activity. Uh, so, But here's the thing. When it comes to control, uh, it's not in and of itself a good or a bad thing. There's no value judgment with the idea of um, being able to supervise or direct or influence the, you know, the path or course of something. That's just, that's just what you're doing. So what is it? But, but control tends to be a fairly hot topic button for people tends to be, you know, a problem for them. They don't want to be controlled. They don't like control. They have the idea, here, let me control you for a moment. Go, go around to your friends and say, do you mind if I control you for a moment and see what happens? Let's see the look you get in their eyes when you say that, right? I mean, even if you're really good friends, they're going to be like, what do you mean? <laughs> oh, what? People don't like the idea of not being in control of themselves, even though, you know, they really aren't, but they, they like to think they are <laughs> And of course they are. I, I'm, I'm being facetious when I say they aren't. Um, you know, we are, we, are, uh, we are responsible for our actions, and that sort of thing. We can certainly determine our own actions. So when it comes to somebody else taking over for us, you know, there needs to be some trust established, all that kind of thing. So it's, So the thing about putting a value judgment on control is that context is everything, and I know I say that a lot during my podcasts, and, um, and I'm going to keep saying it because it's something that bears repeating continually. This is one of those things in critical thinking that is right up there with the importance of I don't know. I've said before, I've made videos in the past about the importance of the phrase I don't know. That is an incredibly important set of words in critical thinking. If you cannot say, I don't know, then you are not a very good critical thinker because there are things you don't know. There's things all of us don't know. And if we can't admit that and see that for what it is, we will never be able to then learn about that thing or acquire that new knowledge. So it is imperative that a person be able to recognize and acknowledge that they don't know things. Apparently, this is a real problem with some people. So, um, so that's really important. But I would say the next most important thing is to recognize in almost every situation you're going to run into in life and, and business and family and family and in relationships and whatever, context is king. You know what's going on in that entire situation? What's the environment? Who are the people? Uh, What are they doing? For what reasons are they doing? it? I mean, all these pieces of context really, really matter. Um, You know, taking quotes out of context can sometimes alter their entire meaning. Uh, If you don't, or uh, taking scientific studies out of context can alter your entire perception of the findings of a scientific study. This happens, unfortunately, all the time. I'll... I'll, um, been listening to these uh, Sapolsky lectures, and he talks about the vital importance of understanding where things are happening, the environmental factors in, in um, behavioral genetics and development. These are, these are crucial. You know, you can, t- you can make very learned statements about studies that are done uh, on a group of people in North Carolina and say, well, this applies to everybody. Well, hold on a second. No, it doesn't. The studies, the findings of that study (laughs) apply to the people in North Carolina. (laughs) And you're going to find that they don't necessarily apply to the people in Norway. (laughs) And this is a really, really important point. So, uh, and it gets missed all the time, which is why you hear me stressing it a little bit, okay? Uh, So, context is king in terms of determining whether any particular incident of control is a good use of control or a bad use of control, you see. Uh, That's kind of where I'm going with all of this. If I tell you uh, I, you know, I dragged the woman down the hallway and she was resisting me the entire way, you'd probably get a pretty grim picture of me and what am I doing dragging this resisting woman down the hallway, right? And if I don't tell you that she just broke into my apartment and set a fire to the place and wanted to kill everybody, then, you know, then, then it might, you know, you need the context in order to understand why it is that I would be dragging some woman kicking and screaming down the hallway of my apartment building and getting her the hell out of there, right? Um, context is everything. That's a really bad example, by the way, but I'm just trying to, you know, give a, give a silly extreme example to demonstrate the point. So there are coming back to control here. There are three factors that I think I've I've kind of identified here. And this is this, by the way, um, you know what I'm talking about right now is really just coming from me. I haven't I didn't go off and read a book or read a study or do this or do that and then come up with these three points. I just kind of thought about it and I wanted to share it with you guys and see what you had to say about it. So feel free to comment on what I'm saying here in the the comments or at sensiblyspeaking.com, because I am curious about your feedback on this. So the relative value of control relies on three factors, I think. Intent, the consequences, and the degree of control, okay? Which, you know, I guess you could say degree has to do with, like, volume or something or how much of, and how, you know, how much force or how much control, how much effort are you putting into the thing. Uh, okay, so let's talk about these. Intent, first off. This is a big one. Um, I posted a video. We're, gonna, we're gonna, Let's just dive right into this in terms of some examples and, and, and how I'm kind of looking at this. I posted an interview with a woman named Christiana who had been a survivor of the Bill Gothard ATI cult, which was a Christian offshoot cult with a you know, homeschooling element. And we did a couple of videos together and they were really, really great. And Christiana was awesome in those. And that's been the, the highest you know, number of views uh, video that I've got on my channel. And as a result of the talk that we did and the, and the, the work that we did exposing the ATI abuses, there's a lot of talk in there about child abuse about beating on kids or spanking them or disciplining them, you know, there's various words or euphemisms used for this, uh, depending on what generation you came from, you know, are you old school and you think, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child, or are you kind of more, you know, a more modern person who actually understands the science of it uh, and, how, and how bad that is for the, for the kid well you get all kinds of different replies on this but one thing that i noticed i mean you get a million views on a video and you're going to get a lot of comments on it and i have gotten a lot of comments and i pay attention to them and a lot of not a lot actually far from the majority but there is a certain subset of those comments of people who are justifying or rationalizing their um, their child abuse uh, when they are beating on their kids Uh, in an effort to discipline them or teach them respect. This is the kind of thing that I hear from these people. You know, how dare you show this video and call out the Duggars as abusive parents and how dare you say that spanking is bad. I was raised with spanking and it was perfectly good and and wonderful and it it didn't hurt me so it's not going to hurt my kids. And, you know, this kind of completely fallacious uh, kind of thinking. So my point here, where I'm getting to with this, is that their intent, though, I recognize, is actually a good positive intent. Believe it or not, right? I'm not calling all these people monsters, right? I'm really not. They beat their kids because they were taught that that's how you raise kids. And so they think, very wrongly, of course, but they think that by doing that, they are instilling good values in their kid. So intent can be good even if the act is horrible. Um, intent can also, of course, be bad. You could have, you know, a con man intent. You could have a Uh, I want to kill you intent, you could have all kinds of, you know, malicious intents going on there, and that would be a way to gauge the value of whether the control that's being exercised, in this case with the parent to the kid, is good or bad, right? What kind of value judgment can you put on it? Well, you can't knock the parents who are actually intending for their kid to be better, at least you can't knock them for their intent, okay, you can knock someone like L. Ron Hubbard for his intent, because he clearly intended to rip people off. He clearly intended to make money off of their uh, disadvantages and take advantage of their gullibility and, and their uh, will, willingness to, you know, here, take my money, please, just throw it at, you know, and just having money thrown at him. Uh, that's bad intent. That's not, that's not good intent. So, uh, so you have a, a spectrum there. Now, where I'm going with this, in case anybody's freaking out right now that I've just rationalized child abuse or something, I did not. I did not do that because where we're going with this is to the second point, which is consequences. And this is the part that we are the worst at. I mean, I'm talking about as human beings in general, we're awful at this. We have very, very limited abilities to predict future consequences, especially unintended consequences. Or consequences that we are wholly ignorant of, which go hand in hand with the unintended consequences. Because generally, when we understand what we're doing, and we know what's going to be the ramifications and and effects of what we're doing, we can predict where the person's, you know, like when we're controlling a child, for example, we can kind of predict what's going to happen. But when it comes to, um, you know, spanking kids, disciplining kids, beating on kids, however you want to put it, Uh, There are all kinds of unintended consequences to this behavior that people are not generally aware of. And so they might have a good intent, but that doesn't mean that what they're doing is a good thing. The road to hell, as they say, is paved with good intentions, not bad ones. I mean, I'm sure Hitler, (laughs) just just because let's just go there, right? I'm sure he had lots of good intentions positive intentions for, you know, him and his country and and all of that. Uh, But, you know, doesn't make anything that he did any more right or any more justified or any more reasonable. So that's kind of where I'm going with this, okay? For example, I'm not going to get into all the science of this because it would take way too long and bore the hell out of you guys, but It is clearly established now by numerous studies which are only a Google search away. Do not go asking me to tell you where to find this stuff. Just go Google it. It's out there. There are tons and tons of these studies that show that beating on your kids whether it's a form of discipline, whether it's a form of instilling respect, whether it's just because you're inconvenienced and you are the adult and they're the kids, so you feel you have the power and authority and right to do whatever you want to to them, whatever your intent, good or bad, the consequences of beating on kids are uniformly and routinely negative. And the fact of the matter is that if they have the right genetic makeup, the right genes and the right sequences... You can actually beat your children into a life of clinical depression or clinical rage or antisocial. You can actually beat somebody into becoming an antisocial personality. That's just a fact. That's a biological fact. It is not my opinion, and it's not some libtard, snowflake, woofy, woofy, wuss viewpoint. It's science. Look it up. Those kind of consequences were not known about 20, 30, 40 years ago. Fine, right? At least not to the general, broad, wide public. Now they are. So at this point now, just to kind of harp on this this thing about the child abuse since I brought it up, at this point, any parents who are engaging in that activity are basically willfully ignorant of the science on it. And that is why that behavior at this point in time, with everything we've learned, is just barbaric and dark ages. That's all it is. It's dark ages thinking. And we have way too much dark ages thinking going on these days. All right. So consequences, right? Intended and unintended. Are the consequences of the control that you're exerting on this individual or situation going to be good consequences in the short, medium, and long term, or are they going to be bad consequences? Do you know what those consequences are? Do other people know? Can you find out? These are things that we should be a lot more curious about in exerting control on things, okay? And then there is the degree of control. You can have perfectly good intent and know that there are good consequences for what you're doing, but if you know, again, with the child thing, just since I'm kind of running with that as the analogy, there are probably hundreds of analogies I could have come up with for this, but I just kind of honed in on this one. If you pick up your kid too hard and you go yanking him arm you know by his arm, well you could break it, right? That's too much control. <laughs> That's too much degree of control. So a proper amount is also very, very useful and helpful in determining whether uh, a situation or a context is a good use or a bad use. All right, so now let's talk about cults. Let's go away from the kid thing and let's go to cults, right? Uh, or high control groups, right? Because that's one of the terms that we use to describe some of these um, destructive cult groups. Uh, a high control group. I was talking to my friend Jeff today about this, right? I mean, there are a lot of groups out there that exert an incredibly high degree of control over their members but are not what we would call destructive cults the marines the military for example i mean a b- great example i mean they're good intent consequences mm, <laughs> you know, well, yeah, we could argue all of that but in general the, at a theoretical level right at a sort of like at the at the at the base level of what is the military what's it all about why are people treated the way they are when they're in it You know, there is informed consent. You do know, in other words, what you're getting into when you sign up for the military. If you don't know, you could have found out. It's not any big secret what life is like in the military. Uh, It is a huge secret what it's like in a destructive cult. That is a key difference, right? So So you could call the Marines or the Navy or Army or whatever. You could call them a high control group. And yes, you will then see instances of what look like cult activity, cult control mechanisms, cultish behavior, for sure. But that is, the, again, the kind of thing I was talking about where the dial isn't necessarily all the way up to 11. If it does go up there and you can get subgroups within the military who do take it to 11, and when they do, and there is a lack of informed consent and there is coercive control and persuasion and all of those other characteristics that we're all so familiar with— then you have a little cult group. That's not good because then people's self-determinism, free will, whatever you want to call it, is being overridden, and they never agreed to it in the first place, and it's not something that is a positive thing for them. It's going to have bad intent, un, intended or unintended consequences, and the intent you have to start questioning at that point. So, the, you know, So you see the dividing lines here. And unfortunately, one of the things that occurs with this, whether it is within a family situation, for example, or whether it's in a a really tight group situation, is the cyclic aspect of it. The new guys come in, they learn what this is all about, and then they grab the torch and then they run with it and they continue the abusive situation because that's how they were indoctrinated. And that's how these kind of things get started and how how they continue to occur. One of the things I also was starting to think about with this is the degree of responsibility for that control or for the um, effects of the control. This is a really good sign or or red flag, as the case may be, for whether you're dealing with an honest group with integrity or whether you're dealing with um, individuals or a group who are of malintent or who don't really have your best interests at heart. Responsibility is key for this. And it was really interesting, I started thinking, responsibility, duh, ability to respond, right? How do they respond to things? If you call them out on this thing, you know, something bad's happened. Some consequence was was not a good consequence, but there was a bad unintended consequence. You want them, the person who was responsible for that, the person who engaged in that, activity that made those people do that or made that person do that and have that bad result or bad consequence, you want that person to be responsible for it. To say, yes, I will respond to this complaint. I will say, yes, I'm the one who did that and here's why I did it and here's what was going on and da-da-da-da-da, right? And, if you, and you know immediately with, with groups like Scientology that that's not what happens. It's victim blaming 101. That's what goes on in these destructive cults. It's They're never responsible for any of the bad things that go on in the group, ever. Look at Scientology. It's a picture-perfect example of what I'm talking about. We call them out on countless numbers of abuses, human rights violations, civil rights violations. Nope, not us, never had anything to do with Scientology. It was all them. It was always them, right? Uh, The Danny Masterson rape case right now. Hello? Right? It's all about blaming those victims. Danny Masterson's not responsible. He didn't do anything wrong. He shouldn't go to jail. In fact, he should get his TV show back. I mean, we got the public at large getting into this. I mean, you know, highly irresponsible people. So that is another thing. It's not not really the same thing as intent, consequences, and degree, but it is another red flag or flag indicator you can use to gauge, okay, we got, we, we got a good control situation going on here, and we have a bad control situation. If there's abnegation or denial of responsibility, I mean, imagine L. Ron Hubbard orders this, like, what, three-, four-year-old kid up into the chain locker at the front of the ship for, and he's stuck in there for three or four days. If something bad had happened to that kid, if he'd been hurt, if he'd been killed... Do you think L. Ron Hubbard, who ordered that to to occur? He was the one who ordered it to happen, and the ethics officer is the one who enforced his orders. Do you think that L. Ron Hubbard would take any responsibility for that if that was what happened? Hell no, of course he wouldn't. He'd blame that ethics officer. And the ethics officer, idiot that he is, would take the blame for it because, of course, we can't blame L. Ron Hubbard, right? So that's another aspect of of what goes on in these cults is that the group members are get so twisted up in their understanding of what's going on and their relationship to the group and what's going on, that they get this very, that they're willing to take on responsibility for things that they were never responsible for, shouldn't have been responsible for, shouldn't have been in their position in the first place, right, uh, and this is all, again, blame the victim 101. Okay, so, and just in case uh, anybody, I, I mean, I didn't mean by that, that in that little example I just gave that the ethics officer there has no responsibility for it. You don't get to walk off with, I just, just following orders, Nuremberg defense. I was talking more about when the victims are being blamed fully, right? Like the Danny Masterson case, that was more what I was talking about there. So, you know, Hubbard talks about responsibility being knowing and willing cause, over you know matter, energy, space, time, life, and form, right? Well, that would have been a, that was a nice idea. And if L. Ron Hubbard had ever taken responsibility for anyone or anything that he had hurt or damaged, then I might be a little bit more impressed. <laughs> okay. So, okay, so those are the things I wanted to go over here this week. I didn't have any, like I said, any big long script or something. I just wanted to throw those ideas out there and see what stuck and see what you guys thought about it. I think that these, um, I think that these are, are important things to look at. I think that um, it is I- imperative that we as individuals be more responsible for our actions and for the consequences of our actions, um, intended and unintended. Uh, of course, within limits, right? Obviously, you can't be responsible for things that you never could have done anything about or never had any degree of control over. <laughs> um, but, you know, when you when you did have some degree of, of, you know, some hand in the mix, you know, you had your hand in there in that, in that cookie mix, uh, then you need to say so. You know, you need to be responsible for that. Okay, so a little fun advice this week. I don't know. Let me go what you guys think. Uh, And if you're finding my channel, we're going to wrap up here, if you're finding my channel informative, educational, and entertaining, please consider supporting me through Patreon. It is what keeps the lights on and the doors uh, (laughs) open and closing and the cameras rolling here. Uh, and allows me to do all this uh, wonderful research that I can pass on to you guys and think about these things and pass that on to you guys too and get your feedback on it. Thanks for coming around and listening. Leave any questions, comments in the feedback section at sensiblyspeaking.com or uh, on my YouTube channel. I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.